And uh, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Dear Lord, we, we thank you that you speak to us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that these words written for us many, many years ago might benefit us today. And we pray wherever we are in our hearts, whether these things are familiar to us or whether we find them all quite strange, we're just exploring them for the beginning. Please help us to understand, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It'd be very strange, wouldn't it, if you turned up to church, any church actually, and didn't hear that word once, at least. But what does it actually mean? If you're a Christian person today, could you describe that? Could you define that in just a sentence or two? If you're still exploring the Christian faith, if you've got an idea what the gospel is all about and what it is for, Definitions matter, don't they? Um, a dictionary is probably nobody's bedtime reading, but it's still quite useful to have one in the house, especially if you like playing word games, I don't know, like uh, Bananagrams or Boggle or Scrabble. I used to quite enjoy playing Scrabble with my wife and my mother-in-law, um, but in recent years I've retired, basically because my mother-in-law's just too good. She plays this um, kind of online Scrabble thing as well. And so every time we play, I'm always like 100 points behind her, at least. And I can query the words as much as I like, but the fact is, if they're in the dictionary, I've just got to suck it up. Definitions matter. And perhaps there is no more important definition in the whole history of words and ideas and language than the definition of the Christian gospel. It is the subject of this book that we're just beginning to read, the letter to the Romans, a letter written by a man called Paul to a church in Rome around the mid-50s. AD. According to the um, 15th century reformer Martin Luther, the book of Romans is the purest gospel. That is what he said. The 20th century preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached through Romans, get this, for 13 years, pretty much non-stop, um, at his midweek meetings in Westminster Chapel, put it like this. He said, there is a sense in which we can truthfully say that the epistle to the Romans has probably played a more important and more crucial part in the history of the church than any other single book in the whole of the Bible. And so today we're going to begin a journey ourselves through this book. God willing, by Easter we'll get to chapter 8, and then at some point in the not-too-distant future we'll do the second half of the book. And by no means is it going to be a dry and dusty exercise as if we're working through some sort of dictionary. Romans isn't just a great book because it defines the gospel. It is a great book because it introduces us to the extraordinary power of the gospel, the power of the gospel to transform our lives, to transform our church, to transform even the world. And this morning, we're just looking at Paul's introduction, these first seven verses. It's the longest introduction by far of any of the 13 letters he wrote in the New Testament. And it's absolutely jam-packed full of meaning. We're going to work through it with just three simple headings to try to define what the gospel is, which Paul is going to unpack in so much more detail through the next 16 chapters. So whether you're already a Christian, and uh, quite a lot of this is familiar, or whether you're still considering it all for the first time, let's not define this most important of words with our own uh, ideas and assumptions, but instead let's let God define it for us through his word. Our first section, verses 1 to 2, and we're going to meet the servant and the source of the gospel. The servant and the source of the gospel. 
Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Well, instead of um, to so-and-so, from so-and-so, like we might write in an email or message or, or even perhaps in an actual letter nowadays, in those days it was from so-and-so to so-and-so. And so the very first word in the letter is the name of the sender, Paul. But just in case we have no idea who he is, he identifies himself in three ways. First, he says he is, he is a servant, literally a slave of Christ Jesus. So he is the lesser party and Jesus is the master. And notice how Paul introduces Jesus. He doesn't say Jesus Christ, which might make us English readers think that it's the name and then the surname. No, he says Christ Jesus because he's putting the title, not the surname, the title first and the name second. Jesus is the Christ. And if we're not quite sure what Christ means, we're going to come back to that later. Second, Paul tells us about the job he's been given. He says, called to be an apostle. If you apply for a new job and you're successful in the application, you might get a phone call. Your new employer might call you and tell you you've got the job. Well, it's similar with Paul. Um, although he doesn't apply for the role, God calls him to it. God takes the initiative. God gives him an offer he cannot refuse. He gives him the task of being an apostle. And that word simply means a messenger or a sent one. But what is his message? And who is God sending him to? What is he sending him to do? Well, Paul tells us in the third line of this brief autobiography in verse 1, he says, set apart for the gospel of God. In those days, the word gospel was actually a political word, really. So uh, the man who ran the first ever marathon... Um, from the battlefield to Athens. He ran back with the gospel. And once he got back to Athens, they sent lots of other people out around Greece with the gospel of the victory of the Greeks over the Persians. Or in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, they celebrated the gospel of Caesar's birthday, the good news of Caesar bringing peace and prosperity to the Roman Empire. But Jesus takes that political word and he transforms it. He says, this is not a message about an emperor an earthly emperor. It's not a message about a, a military victory, but it is nonetheless good news. It is a life-transforming, world-transforming announcement from God. And Paul says, my life is devoted to proclaiming that message. But why? Why is it good news? Well, we're going to find out. But first, the servant of the gospel tells us a bit more about the source of the gospel. Verse 2. The gospel... He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. A little like uh, the media, uh, in the run-up to Tuesday at last, uh, at least, spent almost every waking hour leaking the contents of a certain book. So God had been leaking the contents of his gospel for hundreds of years before it was finally published, if you like. The gospel didn't appear from nowhere, it didn't just drop out of the sky... God had been talking about it, leaking this good news for thousands of years. And so he says the Holy Scriptures, the, the Old Testament, is full of the promises of the gospel, spoken by people who were strictly called prophets, people like Isaiah or Jeremiah, and people who weren't strictly called prophets but who spoke prophetically like David or, or Moses. The whole Old Testament is the story of God's gospel promises. And so... 
What does that mean for us? Well, it means the Old Testament must have an important part in our lives as Christians as well. It's like the overture to a masterpiece or, or the hoarding over a grand building inviting you in. It's not something you just ignore. It's something you look at and think about and ponder. And so as Christians, we study it and we preach it and we read it for ourselves. We look for gospel promises on every page. In fact, without the background of those promises in our minds, we'll never fully understand just how wonderful the gospel itself actually is. And as we read through Romans, we'll see that Old Testament background coming through again and again. But still, we don't know what it actually is yet, do we? We've seen the servant of the gospel, the Apostle Paul. We've seen the source of the gospel, God himself speaking to us through the word of God, the scriptures. But what is the gospel? Next section, verse 3 to 5. The person and the purpose of the gospel. The person and the purpose. You see, it really is very simple. Look at verse 3. The gospel of God regarding his son. The gospel of God regarding his son. The gospel is not a religion. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not even in the first place a way of thinking about life or the world around you. It is an announcement about an individual human being who is somehow also God's son. But who is this person? Well, a bit like the announcer um, at the Golden Globes, I think that's happening or has happened at some point recently, they might build up the tension. And so just before the next award winner comes onto the stage, they will, they will tell us what he or she has accomplished, what films they've starred in and all that kind of stuff before they actually tell us their name. Well, in a similar way, Paul tells us two extraordinary elements of this person's identity before he actually tells us his name. Verse 3, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Okay, so who's David? King David, Israel's greatest ever king, about 1000 BC. But since he reigned in 1000 BC, the story has been a very sad story of decline ruled over by wicked kings, defeated by their enemies, taken into exile by their enemies, returned to their lands, but now just a puppet state of the mighty Roman Empire, a backwater. But the Old Testament, since the time of David, had promised an even greater king would come one day. He'd be descended from David. He'd be known as the Christ or the Messiah. And the Jews had been waiting for his arrival ever since. Maybe the clearest promise in the Old Testament, in fact, about the Messiah was spoken to David himself. David, one day, he said, I want to build a house. I want to build a house for God, a temple. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. One of your sons will build me a house. But he, he turns that word from a physical house into a kind of a dynasty ruled over by one of his sons. This is what he says in 2 Samuel 7. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of an ordinary carpenter. But as the Christmas story tells us, he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. His father Joseph was a descendant of David. Jesus was somehow the answer to God's promise. He was the heir, not the spare, sorry, I couldn't resist that, to David's throne. 
the longed-for, long-promised Messiah, the person of the gospel. But he was not just descended from David. Verse 4, And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. You see, on this screen there, God tells us that the Messiah's throne is going to last forever. But how is it going to last forever? Well, this verse, Romans 1 verse 4, gives us the answer. The Messiah himself will live forever. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event, not just in the whole of history, but in his life as well. Let me try to explain a little bit what this verse is talking about. King Charles III is already king, isn't he? But on the 8th of May this year, he will be crowned king. A public act that demonstrates the status he already has. The resurrection was a bit like that. Jesus was already the heir to David's throne. But the resurrection was in some ways the public coronation of him. The moment when he is visibly appointed, visibly declared to be the son of God. But it's more than that. It's not just a symbolic demonstration of a status that he already has. Somehow the resurrection changed the status of Jesus. You see in the verse it says he was appointed the Son of God in power. So what did God do? By the power of his Holy Spirit he raised the corpse of Jesus of Nazareth, descended from David from the grave, and he appointed him to the most powerful position of authority in the universe. And so finally, Paul is in a position to name the person of the gospel. The climax is there at the end of the verse. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, the crucified Galilean Jew, descended from David, is Lord of everything. Forever. I remember realizing that when I became a Christian about 20 years ago. I think I'd come to understand this gradually over the course of a year and a half that Jesus had died on a cross for me, that he'd taken the punishment for my sins upon himself, and, and so when I died, I could be forgiven by God. And so each day, I'd, if I thought I'd done something wrong, I'd say, God, I'm sorry, Jesus died for me, something like that. And a friend of mine just helped me to see that Jesus isn't a vending machine. You know, pop in a prayer for forgiveness, out comes a little bit of forgiveness in return. Jesus is saviour, that is wonderful. But he is also supremely Lord. And realising that for me was a pretty key moment, in fact one of the, the final key moments in me finally becoming a Christian. And I wonder if that might be something that some of us here today need to realise as well. Jesus Christ is Lord the person of the gospel. Once we understand that, I think we're in a place to understand the purpose of the gospel as well. Verse 5. Um, look at that with me. Verse 5. Through him, that is through Jesus Christ, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So Paul returns to his task as an apostle. He says, I have got grace and apostleship. In other words, I've got authority to announce that Jesus Christ is Lord to the Gentiles. That's everyone who's not a Jew. And why does he announce that message? 
He tells us so that they would have the obedience that comes from faith. That expression is a little bit like the front and the back cover of a book. It actually only appears here and in the second last verse of the letter, but it is a key thing that binds the whole letter together. We need to understand it. Literally, it is just two words there on the screen, faith and obedience. And each of those two words explains the other. So let me just try to give you, draw a little diagram for you on the screen to, to explain that. See, if we have faith, we will be obedient. We believe that Jesus is Lord, and so we obey him as Lord in every area of our lives. Even when that is hard for us personally, even when that goes totally against the grain of our culture. We believe that Jesus is Lord, so we live for Jesus as Lord. But if we stop there, if that is all we have, it's not the whole thing that we need. It's probably going to become pretty joyless and pretty resentful. Oh, I, better, I better obey him because he's Lord. There's no way to keep going as a Christian. We need the other half of the picture, which is this. Obedience means having faith. You see, we believe that Jesus is Lord, and so we obey the gospel. Obedience means having faith. Obedience means saying in my heart, I believe that Jesus is Lord. See, that happened for me when I first became a Christian. But it happens every step of the way as well through the Christian life. And I think that keeps our obedience from being joyless and resentful. Because the gospel tells us Jesus Christ is a good Lord. He's the best Lord. He's the perfect King. And when I obey him, that is, the gospel motivates me to obey him. We're going to see both sides of that diagram all the way through the letter. Sometimes one will be at more, more the forefront. We need to trust Jesus. Sometimes others will be more in focus. We need to obey Jesus. But, but they're always there, always at the same time. One thing never changes. Jesus Christ is Lord. So wherever we are in our Christian walk this morning, and that includes us if we're still thinking about the Christian faith for ourselves, we are always called to the obedience of faith. Not two separate watertight compartments that never meet, but two aspects of life that always belong together. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. So let me ask you this morning, are faith and obedience together in your life? Are they together in our church's life as we share the gospel with others, as we learn to live more and more for Jesus? That is the purpose of the gospel. And yet it's not quite the ultimate purpose of the gospel. I wonder if you notice that in the verse. Verse 5, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. You see, the ultimate purpose of the, of the gospel is the glory of Jesus. It's for his name's sake, not ours. Paul has the great task of being an apostle for the honour and reputation of Jesus, so that all creation would see, that all creation would delight in the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that thought, that thought about, the, about all creation honouring Jesus, all people honouring Jesus, moves us to the last section. Just remind you where we've been, the servant and the source of the gospel, the person and the purpose of the gospel. But what is the gospel for? Uh, sorry, who is it for? And, and what are those who accept it? get from it. Finally, the beneficiaries 
and the benefits of the gospel. The beneficiaries and the benefits. Verse 6. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul started with his identity. He then moved to Jesus' identity. And now he talks to the readers about their identity. If they had to fill in a census form in those days, the vast majority of this church would have written ethnicity Gentile, not a Jew. There were some Jews, but the most of them were Gentile. And everyone would say, place of residence, Rome. As someone has said, the gospel is the everyone, everywhere gospel. It's for those people who identify as Gentile, not Jewish, and those who do. It's for those who've known God's promises since they were born. It's for those who've never heard them before. And the gospel knows no geographical boundaries either. It didn't stay in Jerusalem. It started in Jerusalem, didn't it, when Jesus is raised from the dead? But now it is spreading to the heart of the Roman Empire. And it won't stop there. One of the reasons Paul writes the letter of the Romans is so that this church will help him take the gospel to the edge of the known world, to Spain. And that is because the potential beneficiaries of the gospel are all people, everywhere, regardless of how they are identified. I think this has quite a lot to say to us today. You notice how our culture divides us all up according to all different aspects of our identity. Ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, gender, class, religion, disability, skin colour, wealth. The list goes on and on and on. Again and again, I am told that an aspect of my identity separates me from you and you from me. But wonderfully, the gospel works in exactly the opposite way. It doesn't erase difference and say difference doesn't matter. But nor does it allow difference to divide us. Instead, what it does is it says you all have lots of different identities. But the gospel unites you by an even greater identity which in many ways is the supreme benefit of the gospel. I think this is there in verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the benefits of the gospel for these people receiving the letter? There in the end of verse 6, they belong to Jesus Christ. They don't belong to Caesar. They don't belong to their earthly masters if they have them. They belong to Jesus and then verse 7, they are loved by God, even if no one else loves them. God does. And then again, verse 7, they are called to be his holy people. They have a purpose in life, to, to live for God and to love God. And why can they do that? Because of the very last lines of this introduction. Because they have received grace and peace from God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Grace and peace, just a shorthand way of saying restored relationship with God. And if you are a Christian person today, that is the, the benefit of the gospel that you have received. Restored relationship with God, a new identity with him. You belong to him. He loves you. He has a special and wonderful purpose for your life. Are you, are you reminding yourself of that today? Are you delighting in that, trusting in that? no matter what else is going on around you. And if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian today, please be clear that this benefit is available to you too. Anyone can be a beneficiary of the gospel. It is for all people, everywhere, all the time. All we need to do is trust that Jesus Christ is Saviour and Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And if you know in your heart today that you've never actually done that, maybe just think, reflect, why? Why have I not done that yet? What is keeping me from doing so? Definitions matter. Uh, when you're trying to win a game of Scrabble against your mother-in-law, but in many other parts of life as well. And there is no more important definition to understand than the word gospel. How good it is that we do not need to define it for ourselves, but we can listen to God's definition of it. The servant of the gospel, that's in this case the Apostle Paul, the source of the gospel, God speaking to us through his scriptures, the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ our Lord, the purpose of the gospel, obedient faith, faithful obedience, the beneficiaries of the gospel, all people, everywhere, always, the benefit of the gospel, a new identity, loved by God, belonging to God, all for the glory of Jesus. So what is the gospel? Can you answer that question? Shall we bow our heads and pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us about this most important word. And we thank you that at the heart of the gospel, it is the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to respond to him as Lord with obedient faith and faithful obedience. For we ask it in his name. Amen.